1: here we are back again and what do we got going today oh.
0: ron we ha- we have a super super replay coming up and i promised uh one of my customers who's probably the nicest person i met in the world uh that i would get her on the show we, we were doing it right back when we were on radio and i wanted to get her on to talk about her laundry room and kitchen okay. it's done it looks phenomenal right. uh, and i want to go to the horror story for our new listeners through podcast. i want to talk about one of the horror that we did years ago that had probably the best ratings that I've ever had because when I put it out in the video, nobody believed what was done. So we're going to talk about that in the horror story. And what have we got for the future And we segment? got a
1: super college coming up. It's uh, part two, uh, part one airs today. And uh, we're talking about why some towns flourish and other towns flounder. And we've got, for today, we're going to interview uh, Dar Williams, the singer, songwriter, author. And she's got an interesting perspective on why some towns really do well. I'm
0: looking forward to it. All right, so let's get into the replay. We have Lisa on the air now. Lisa, thanks for doing this, and thanks for coming on Your Valuable Home podcast. Hi. (laughs) I know we had Paul on before, and uh, we, we talked about a few things that, why you did it. The job's done. Walk us through the scenarios that uh, from start to finish and how the kitchen looks and what do you think about the whole job?
2: Definitely. We've been in our house for 14 years. The kitchen was always something I wanted to renovate. It definitely lacked counter space. And for our house, the kitchen's really the central area of where everyone tends to go. And we really just wanted to make it more inviting and to make sure that we could all be in there and really make it feel like that central place for the home. We reached out to Kevin pre-pandemic, got things started, had you come over. We wanted to also move our laundry room upstairs, wanted to see if that was something that was possible. I honestly wasn't sure it would be. Kevin, you kept letting me know it would be possible, but again, until it was complete, You know, you always have your doubts. Fast forward to well over a year later, and the kitchen is by far my absolute favorite place in the house. I'm still in that honeymoon phase. I don't think it's ever going to end though. I come downstairs, I smile, it makes me so happy. Kevin, you were able to also make my dreams come true of moving that laundry room upstairs. It's now in addition to our walk-in closet, so doing laundry has honestly never been easier. And by moving that laundry room upstairs, the key thing for me in the kitchen was I really wanted a big island. So again, it would just make it more inviting and continue to brand that kitchen as the central place. And by moving the laundry room upstairs, we were able to extend the kitchen and make it that much bigger and give me the island of my dreams. Again, it's really become my favorite place. Packing lunches, making dinners. I don't necessarily love to cook, but having my dream kitchen has definitely made cooking and all of those uh, typical kid chores that much more enjoyable.
1: You know what, you just, uh, operative phrase, it brought a smile to my face. If you do home improvements and they don't, they bring a frown to your face, you know you, you are not a wrong turn, yeah, absolutely. So funny, you know?
2: <laughs> No, I, again, I still, I mean, the project ended right before the new year. So, you know, we're almost four or five months in now. I can't even keep track. And I still, again, just smile every time I'm in my kitchen and cooking dinners, making lunches. It's not as much of a chore anymore because I just love my kitchen. It makes me so happy. And even the time when it was going on, Kevin and Dave made it just such an enjoyable experience. You know, it was the pandemic, when we weren't seeing people, they honestly became my family. It was almost sad when it was done. It was just nice to get to see them every day. Even our dog would get so excited that I can't wait to find more work. I'm not sure my husband's excited for that, but to get them back into the house because we're just, again, so grateful and happy with how everything turned out. I, I honestly couldn't ask for more.
1: Well, they'll hang around even if you don't have any work. Right? <laughs> Dave usually does. Well, that's does. <laughs>
2: true too. We just, find, we just find reason for them to come over. But again, everything, just the you know, attention to detail. Kevin and I are both pretty type A personalities. But I never felt like I couldn't go to him with a question. If anything, he probably noticed it before I did. But any question I would come to him with, Kevin's answer is always, whatever you need, I'm here to make you happy. And that's just totally what you want in a contractor, someone that you can trust and knows that your needs are really what they're there to do. And it was just an absolute pleasure. And again I have my dream kitchen.
0: Well you know when you talk about meeting the needs for a homeowner. So all we did, we started the upstairs first. We wanted to get the laundry room moved up, so we kept the existing laundry room downstairs while we were doing the work upstairs. And it was a difficult job because we had to take trusses out. This was the most difficult part because the it took us about two months to get Floor the trusses? Uh, roof trusses? roof trusses. We put roof it upstairs. Oh. So we had to get our architect in to design everything, over built it, of course. And uh, so when we were just about finishing up, we, we actually moved pretty quickly. Within a week, we had this ready to go. So I said, well, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll get the laundry moved up. And uh, it would be a couple of days without uh, having a washing machine. But we'll get it working as quick as possible. So her husband comes down and says, yeah, she's been going next door. I said, well, probably just, what, once or twice? No, no, she does laundry every day. And <laughs> I said, Dave, we got to get this thing moving a little bit quicker. We got to get the water up there and get it on an operational as quick as possible because I didn't know you did water and wash every day up there. So uh, we do a comedy, don't we?
2: Oh, one hundred percent. Again, it never—you know—everyone tells you, "Oh my God, these kitchen renovations, it's a nightmare," and you know, just be prepared. And it honestly never felt that way. I felt like you always made sure we had livable space. We were able to have areas where we can get done what we needed. Um, and even for being in a pandemic, I never ever felt unsafe again the nightmares that people talk about we didn't have that experience at all
0: oh thank you and how long would the project start to finish we were done in four or five weeks total complete
2: four or five weeks i would say for sure definitely it was much quicker than i ever would have imagined i know that kevin one thing that you're known for and that was one of the reasons why we specifically went with your company for the contracting is we do both work full-time we have the dog we did want something that could be done quickly. I didn't believe that that could actually happen, but it did.
1: So you did it at the height of p- pandemic. Did you have any problems with materials? Getting materials? Any shortages? Anything like that? Back then, no. We
0: were we were still in a in a good state. We, we actually started the job. I think it was November last year. We we got oh. started, so it wasn't as bad. Uh, yeah, lumber it didn't wasn't really going through really the
1: start to happen until after the first of the year.
0: Probably right yeah. around mid January, yeah. everything started going ballistic. But yeah. we, we got in. We we got everything done. It was done quickly. As she said, talking about a kitchen, when you're doing a kitchen, if you don't plan ahead, even before the pandemic or post, if you don't plan ahead, it's going to be a nightmare for the homeowners. Because even uh, if you're done quickly, now four to five weeks is unheard of to do a a complete renovation of their complete upstairs, and then taking the kitchen all apart, moving some walls, moving some plumbing, putting windows in, and then doing the the
1: whole whole upstairs. uh, Did the whole upstairs? The whole
0: roof over top of the garage was completely gutted. And we had to reframe everything with LVL beams, mm-hmm. which you should have seen us getting those the in. laminated beams. Yes, us, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the first thing, the hardest thing of this job, at least, I don't know if you noticed, but to get those beams, I was a little nervous on getting these heavy beams because they had to go from one end to the other in the garage, mm-hmm. <laughs> just cut them in half and put them in pieces. You've got to bring them in one piece. And of course, Dave, he figured it out. Uh, we, we took the window out in the garage to be able to slide up in
1: they're heavy too to move around oh yeah i Uh,
0: I saw the double hernia i think i had the scar right there to to prove that but yeah they're they're (laughs) we're heavy but everything was done and you know what the best part about the job is putting a smile on the face and getting fruit smoothies because every couple days when she came down she'd be like you you guys need a fruit smoothie so that's our thing between her and i every time she's looking for a fruit smoothie uh, she always looks at me i'm like okay she makes phenomenal fruit smoothies Mm, I had to keep it.
2: my contractors happy and healthy.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and the
2: other thing, too, I'll mention is whatever stress was going on, if things were delayed or things, Kevin and Dave never showed that stress to us. Honestly, I could just sit back and get my work done while I knew they were taking care of the kitchen and the laundry room. They never conveyed any of the issues or problems to us. And again, I think that's something that's so important in a contractor is that they're really the ones managing the project. That's just something I would give them kudos for as they never bring you into those problems or stresses. So they make it probably look a lot easier than it is. And we were just always appreciative and grateful for that.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Right after we, we've got that, when we said we got the drywall up, my stress goes down because that's what I was stressing out. of. I'm, I'm sure Dave told you that. I was really panicked on some of the things. But uh, the inspector passed everything with flying colors. And that's what all of our listeners should really be picking when you pick a contractor don't go off price initially. Read between the lines. Feel good about the contractor because if the contractor gets everything done, like you just said, uh, everybody's going to be happy. So we do appreciate that. And uh, Lisa, we do appreciate you coming on your Valuable Home podcast and talking about this.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing. Thank you for Teresa. having yeah. me. All right, Ryan, it's time for the horror story. Okay, what do we got today?
0: So I want to go back to when we were on the radio. And this is for our new listeners now podcasting because some people don't believe some of the horror stories that I talk about. Some of
1: them are hard to believe, yeah.
0: Well, this one was a doozy. This one, I, I was just showing somebody uh, who's a mechanical contractor, 8-track mechanical contractor. And I, I told him the story. He said, there's just no possible way that had happened. And I said, here's the video. I'm telling you, I, I never seen somebody laugh. He was belly roll laughing going, you got to be kidding. And he paid for that. I said, yes, he did. So, long story short, short. Uh, guy was taken by another contractor. We came in. We had to satisfy, I guess, some of the, the, his needs. Everything was completely gutted. Now, what that means is, you ever see a new home being built, and the home's up, just sticks, the stick, yeah, just a okay. stick framing. Mm-hmm. Roof gets done, siding, windows are in. But when you go inside the house, everything's empty. You just see studs and plywood. Mm-hmm. That's the perfect time for all the mechanicals, the electric, the plumbing That's to get done. That's normal,
1: right, <laughs> to do it that way. That is. What do he do? Wait till the drywall was up?
0: Well, I gave him a price for everything. And he said, well, listen, you're a mechanical guy. We're going to do split systems throughout the house. I said, why you want to do that? Because there's a lot of split systems you do have to put in. Why don't you just get one unit, run some duct work, you have the basement, everything's opened. He said, well, I'm going to go with this guy. I said, no problem. Listen, when you get my schedule, just like we had Lisa on, and we talked about the schedule that I give you. And we hold to that date, which means if I'm going to rip out, I'm going to do." Uh, the mechanicals, everything gets done, I get my inspection. And he had the schedule. He had the schedule. Okay. So we, we got everything done. We moved all the beams, got everything set up. And I said to him, listen, he's, he's got to be here uh, to do the mechanical. He's got to run all the lines because the drywall's down. And I, every time I tell the story, I tell people the drywall was down. So it, did I tell you the drywall was down? Sometimes when you walked in the house, there was no drywall. So at that time, we had the electrician in, we had the plumber in. Everything was moved. Everything was put in the walls because you have that access to do everything. So I said, well, listen- we And were,
1: they both did their jobs right, right? Every, yeah, we got okay. it inspected and mm-hmm. everything
0: was done. So he took it upon himself to have this mechanical contractor uh, to do the job. He said, well, that's on you then at this point, but listen, I need him in there Thursday. And what he's gonna do, he's gonna run the piping, the wire, the drain line through the walls, up into the bedrooms, easy access. It's gonna be great. And it was a day that you and I are recording when we were doing radio. So I said, well, listen, I'll give the guys a day off. This was a couple of years ago. And I said, uh, they need a little break because we were working there seven days a week 18 hours a day just trying to get this guy done so when the mechanical guy came out that Thursday everything was done he said all right this is great so we're right on schedule so we went back on Friday and I said well listen uh the inspector's going to come out he's got to put a blessing on it I was on the outside starting to install the siding on the outside of the back wall where we had to move some things around and we moved some windows and Mm -hmm. I said well this is the time to do it but we're done and he said ah the the guy's gonna come back do a little touch up so I'm walking around the back and everything was on the far right side of the house it was a Cape Cod house as I walk back there I hear Dave going you got to be kidding me I get up onto the side, and I start looking up on the roof. Now, when you're putting a split system in, I get in certain applications, like in our area. Yeah, explain split
1: a system for people who, who don't know what that is. What are, what are so they?
0: a split system are small units that are applied on the wall, and it can be mounted, and that is your air handler, which you usually probably see in an attic or could be right. uh, in the basement somewhere. And what that does is it heats and cools per room. And you can have these units installed per room. And it's the same piping that you see on a, a big mechanical unit, but they're just pipes going in and out for the free on So you can
1: turn one off in one room and keep the other one off? Okay. Correct. Yeah. Okay.
0: But each individual one, it's their own unit. So you've got to have piping to go to each one of those units. So instead of putting them in the wall, because the drywall is down, and I tell every mechanical contractor the drywall was down, when he roughed it in, he ran everything on the outside of the house over the new siding. So it has the pipes going out along the siding, up the side, around the soffit. It's
1: up. like a Rube Goldberg contraption, right? <laughs> it <laughs> looks like, thought it was It looks like an
0: etch-a-sketch. Somebody's doing an etch-a-sketch. It's all over the place. Good there Lord. are pipes, it goes over the gutter where the soffit comes out. When you look up, you see an overhang, then a gutter attached to it at your fascia. It goes up around the soffit, up along the roof going in the one side, one on the other side, one going under the soffit inside the first floor, which all you had to do was put it right inside the wall. The drywall was down. I said, I said to the guy, how long did it take you
1: to do it? We were here
0: all day. I said, all you had to do was stub it in. You needed about… it's
1: hard to believe how some of this stuff happens. It's just crazy.
0: Again, I keep… When I I tell people the drywall is down, all that is is that you could have ran straight in the wall, four inches turned up, went straight up through the second floor and tied every cavity and did about… 50 feet of piping at the most there was about 400 feet of pipe on the outside of the house
1: i'm assuming that the homeowner accepted this right apparently he for did. one reason or another mm-hmm. okay but had he not accepted it there's only one thing you can do right is just rip it all out and put a regular hvac system in right well
0: then you have to take all the duct because there's no ductwork in the house everything was completely stripped out
1: but if you try to do this over, you got to take the drywall out, right? Correct. Oh, and hilarious. I'm done. The,
0: the job it turned out great. But, but then I, I said to him, listen, when you're ready to do the siding, because there were certain areas that were a little bit older, and he was trying to piecemeal together because he got taken by another contractor, He 60,000 out. And he said, well, we'll just do it later down the line because I put some new siding up that looked phenomenal. It was a nice deep color, like what I put on my house, but in a more of a brown color. And I said, well, here's the good news all that piping has all got to come off. I can't get to the siding because it's up tight against everything. The gutter's going to have to be cut in pieces. And I said, that's a long piece of gutter. Then on the roof, there's nothing to do about any of this. All of this has got to come down. Now he's just looking at me, you, you, you're kidding me, right? I'm like, no, 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 but this is what you hired. Why didn't you want to go with the other guy? He's like, well, you know, there's a couple hundred more, and we got a really good warranty with it. And I said, well, look at the job that did. Did you ask the questions? Of course not. But when I do put that video out, and I, and I hate to say the homeowner got really ripped off. He did, but... They should have listened to me from the beginning, but the mechanical contractor should be not doing stuff like this. Like I said, there are applications in Philadelphia, where we live in Northeast Philly, predominantly because we put a couple split systems in and a lot of the mechanical contractors, that's all they can do because it's brick and block. And I get it. And they do a very nice job. Everything's in nice tees. They put these white caps over. So it looks very professional. When I take the picture and show everybody, this isn't professional. This is, it's spaghetti. It looks like white spaghetti all through the house. And it's repped up. I can't roof.
1: believe this happened. I really, it's it's very difficult to comprehend. Um,
0: again, if you don't listen to the show, these are some of the questions yeah. that you, if you don't ask, but that's something I wouldn't even really let people know about, because I, I didn't think it ever could happen. I didn't think anybody would be, I did not say smart enough, but actually do something like this. If you're in business, you, you should have a somewhat of an idea, idea but IQ above four to be able to do something like this. But yeah, yeah. I, I have the pictures I'll be posting and showing our new listeners of all the mechanical contractors. If you are out there, and if you don't believe me that this could happen, these are some of the things that do happen. But I'd like to get everybody's information and horror stories. And, and what we could do is just educate our listeners on how not to have it happen to you so come thank, on the
1: show thank goodness these guys aren't building cars and airplanes we'd all have a lot of trouble uh, right? well, yeah well the tires
0: would be on the top of the roof not on the bottom that's how <laughs> bad this job was so <laughs> give us a call here or give us a shout on kevin at your let me know about your horror stories so we can get you on the air and we'll talk
1: about it and listen stick with us because we've got a very very interesting segment coming up on why some towns flourish others flounder with people from what's called the placemakers guild and dar williams singer songwriter and author All right, Ron. Now it's time for our featured
0: segment. I know you've been jonesing to get to this, and I know you uh, you got excited. I thank you for putting all this together. And what have we got?
1: Well, we've got Dar Williams, singer, songwriter, and chronicler of the uh, American scene a warm welcome to you to your valuable home podcast and this is actually the second in a two-part series that we did we had Gary Toth and uh, Raj Moabir from uh, the Placemakers Guild last week talking about you know why do some towns flourish and other towns flounder and it's really going to be interesting to get your perspective on this so I'm Ron Milk producer and co-host of our weekly podcast and here is Kevin
0: yeah thank you thanks for doing this for us I do
3: appreciate it to come
0: in
1: And next is Gary Toth, founder of the Placemakers Guild.
3: Hi, Ron. How are you? I'm happy to be back in Trenton, the city that I worked in for 34 years. There you go.
1: Gary, actually, it was was the guy who suggested that I read your book when we did the show with him last week. And the title of the book is What I've Seen in a Thousand Towns. It's a great inspirational read. I would recommend it to anybody. And we want to introduce you also to Cynthia Nikitin, Gary's colleague and a member of the Placemakers Guild. Cynthia
5: thank you, Ron. I'm really delighted to be here talking with you all and DAR because positive proximity, you know, brought us together. I read your book, DAR and Gary saw you keynote the 2020 New Jersey APA conference. And it was my idea to ask Gary to have Ron invite you. And you said, yes. So (laughs) it's just thrilling to be here. Thank you. Thank you. What an honor.
1: Uh, Cynthia and you have a little more in common. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But it seems to me that you and, prof- and I've had many talks with Gary about this. Gary and I are friends. We're fellow tennis players. And you and professional placemakers speak the same language, but just different dialects of that language. And you have a shared sensitivity about, you know, for what it takes to turn cities and towns into places where life and good things can happen. And reading your book made me acutely aware of my identity. Talk about the identity of towns and people Identifying with that. I'm proud to say I'm from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where George Washington crossed the Delaware to defeat the Hessians in Trenton and and save the revolution. And you know what? We're podcasting from right around the corner where that happened right now. We're in Trenton. Fantastic. Gary, can you sum up what the role of uh, professional placemakers and the mission of of the Guild is?
3: Well, to build on what I said last week, the Placemakers Guild see us essential to placemaking the active participation in the community, not only in conceiving ways of making changes but also implementing them. Oftentimes we use a concept called light build. Others call it tactical urbanism. Some folks call it lighter, quicker, cheaper. It's kind of equivalent to the sledding hill that Dara talked about at the very beginning of her book. And what it does is the community members can not only then actively participate in conceiving what should be done, but they can actually participate in implementing it. And this approach restores the confidence to communities that have lost their confidence due to, since they fell on hard times, that they can get things done.
1: Dar, as a traveling minstrel and a um, very keen observer of, of the scene, of the American scene, you've witnessed the rebirth of cities and towns across the country. Mm-hmm. What's it like to have your experiences, which I think are absolutely monumental? I'd like to get in a Corvette someday and drive around the country and see all these places. Most people, and the perspectives that most people will never even have. So what's that like? What drove you to write the book, too?
4: You know, what it really does, I mean, you know, in lockdown, I've been able to explore the world in the five square mile area from my house and there's so much to discover and rediscover right where we are so maybe I could have written this but I definitely went from place to place and observed how people put their energies together to create this thing I call positive proximity to become cool and resilient and unique and and groovy (laughs) and the best thing about all of this is that when I talk to people about this country and they kind of give me these sad platitudes about how you know, we're just so divided. We just don't have any hope. It's just, you know, everything's getting worse. I have a very strong experience-based response, which is, that's not true if you are committed if you can find a way to get out your door and rub two sticks together and make a little fire <laughs> if you're in a town that can do that even at the beginning stages you counter all of the narratives of greed and money just running the whole conversation out there and political division so what i have from my experience is the optimism that people find very wonderful through acts of everyday creativity everyday solution finding and everyday basic kindness of which there's so much There's a great story to tell about our country as well as ourselves.
1: Well, you just told it very well. I mean, optimism to me is the operative word there. I mean, there's so little optimism in this country today, a lot of pessimism, a lot of divided people. And what you just said is a good rallying point, maybe to start the ball rolling the other way. Yeah, getting back to the old days. Absolutely.
4: It's funny. I'm a songwriter and I'm pretty emotional. You know, I write about emotions and stuff, but in some ways I'm, I really enjoy not being sentimental. This is what I learned from writing this whole book. We think that the opposite of division is unity. And we have this picture of everybody hugging and everybody coming to their senses and everything. And my realization is that the opposite of division is collaboration. And if we look at it that way, then we say, oh, I have that in me. I can't hug everybody and I can't be nice to everybody, but I can collaborate with a lot of people. <laughs> so let's let our optimism be a little bit more pragmatic and maybe not buy into this idea that we're so hopelessly divided. But go on. <laughs> Sorry, now, just wanted to
1: add that. Uh, I'm buying everything you're saying there. Kevin's shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. and Gary's shaking his head, too. So have you encountered placemakers like Gary and Cynthia on your travels? Have you ever bumped into them?
4: Well, I've spoken at planning conferences and things, but I have to say that the Placemakers Guild is the gold standard, you know, and actually there was a part of me that wrote the book thinking, Gosh, you know, when I grow up and when my town grows up, my town was encountering a lot of uh, a very specific division you know when we all grow up maybe we can go to people like gary and cynthia and really engage placemakers in a meaningful way but we're not there yet we're just you know like we don't have that civic confidence to know to make that phone call and how to make that phone call and what to ask for and, and what to you know and to believe that something good can happen i wrote this entire book basically to bring us to that place of civic confidence, civic self-esteem, that we can then make those next steps and call on organizations that are so well-organized and savvy, like placemakers, to really bring in the big brains. (laughs) Uh, I am so excited to be meeting Cynthia and Gary. No, we have not literally run into each other, but I have, because of uh, speaking at planning conferences, met some beautiful brains out there and, and urban planners.
1: Yeah, I've gone to a conference with Gary, very, very impressed with the, with the quality of people who attend and talk yeah, about
3: this yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, so Tara, try- let me be the first to offer you a role in the Placemakers Guild.
4: <laughs> oh. <God. laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gary.
1: Your concept in the book, the, the core concept in the book is positive proximity, like a basic building block. Define that for us.
4: And my technical definition is it's the state of being where living side by side with other people is seen as beneficial. So that doesn't mean, as I said, being able to hug or being able to really love people. And you must know this in your field. I mean, I, I listened to your show and, and, and I loved all of the different kinds of people and personalities you work with. You know, you'll work with a roofer or a plumber. And you don't really like them. You don't necessarily like their politics, but man, you trust them. You know, you trust the work they do and you respect the work they do. And you're so glad they're in the world because you can collaborate with them. So positive proximity is knowing that without any of the the gooey stuff that, you know, it's walking out the door in the morning and feeling like you've benefited from the work that people have done around you in your community and you feel like you can contribute to your community and you want to and you consider that to be a good part of your identity.
1: Yeah, well said. And you know what you're talking about? You're talking about being local and communicating with each other and doing good things positive things for the community i think that's all good stuff and I, gary's shaking his head too right yeah
0: well you know i do it all the time every time i walk out with when ron and i i'm always speaking to somebody i mean you're i'm sure if you uh, go more into the show i'm always talking to somebody ron's like really next thing you know because we might be late on the show or we're down <laughs> in the city and next thing i'm talking to like 15 people He's like, what are you doing i said i just like to talk to people and i say hey, <laughs> reading your book it seems like you just met so many great people uh, through the days of going through every one of these cities that you've been at.
1: Yeah, Kevin's a talker. When we walk to the studio, well, <laughs> I usually I look
0: behind <laughs> you. where do he go? Yeah. I'm talking. That's what I do. I, but I love doing that. I, I, and, I'm sure you feel the same way. You like to talk yeah. to people, to get their insights, see what drives them to be out there. I, I, th- these are things that I love. And just by uh, reading your book, I was feeling you, you felt the same way.
4: Yeah, but that means you're also one of those special people, which is a, what I call a conscious bridger. Well, I think you both are, which means that you wake up in the morning excited for the bridges that we can build, you know, you probably the kind of person who thinks, oh, so-and-so should meet so-and-so. And and then, you know, like this person wants to make a green roof. And this person is a really cool science teacher. I should introduce themselves and maybe they can put a green roof on the high school and turn it into a big project. Like Conscious Bridger's just think that way. And therefore, every conversation yields an idea for a different kind of bridge and a new solution.
3: I
1: think you probably could say, disagree with me if if you will, but I think you can say that's what we're all about. We help homeowners and even residential real estate investors build wealth with with real estate and do it the right way. Make sure they're getting a good deal when they hire a contractor to do a job. So- that's what we're all about. What constitutes the positive proximity? Let's just go through some of the towns that are in your book. And I've been to some of these places. I've been to a lot of these places, actually. You wrote about mm-hmm. Wilmington, Delaware, Moab, Utah, Carborough, North Carolina, Beacon, New York. I knew New Beacon. Been there. I was there years ago, and you made me want to go back too. Seattle. Mm-hmm. What's the positive proximity? Some of these are like post-industrial towns, but others are towns that just have are surrounded by all, all this natural beauty, right? So what constitutes a positive proximity in each case?
4: I divided the book into three categories. One is uh, spaces that are conducive to creating what we call the strength of weak ties. And Gary referenced that last week, which is Grosvenor, I believe, uh, it was the sociologist, one of the big sociologists behind that. This idea that you're really going to gain the most by having a wide net of acquaintances, you know, when you're looking for a new job or when you're looking to have repairs on your house or change your life, you know. There's certain spaces that are conducive to creating the strength of weak ties. There's identity-based projects where you look at the identity of your town based on its history, its food, its natural beauty, its cultural history or possibilities, and it's and and then I did a breakout thing about waterfronts alone, just any kind of waterfront that you can develop in any kind of public-private partnership is is going to do something miraculous <laughs> for your community. And then the last was translation. This this thing where you know Kevin walks down the street and talks with everybody. The way that we translate ourselves to each other. So Wilmington is a beautiful I love Wilmington and I love its mayor who was the head of the Riverfront Development Corporation before he became mayor. Wilmington has a lot of wealth around the city, but the city was struggling when I first went there and um, two guys. This is how so many things began. Two guys were standing under an umbrella, sharing an umbrella during a parade, and uh, in Delaware, in Willington, and said to each other, "We got to bring back the river. Remember how great, you know, that little ecological preserve was down there before it got all messed up." And they decided to talk to the right people. They had enough linking capital, as we say, This is a kind of a social capital where you kind of know who to call. <laughs> um, they they got this ecological preservation thing going on one end of the Christina River and then kind of continued from there to today where they have two plus maybe mile boardwalk coming out of that preserve uh, where people can walk uh, and where businesses go and the mayor wow. now really fought hard to get a, a mini golf course <laughs> for you know sort of evening recreation that gets people outside and and interacting. So this riverfront boardwalk brought in restaurants, a children's museum, and it also magnetized a lot of wealth from corporations that are so famous in Wilmington, Delaware, and sort of a wealth of attention and money from private donors from that suburban periphery, and and created an opportunity for Wilmington folks to just loosely interact with each other and to Appreciate the beauty of the city because riverfronts are a great way to sort of stand and then look into your city and think about it, and to provide just a nice way for people to casually walk up and down after work, go with their families, be safe, and be proud of their city. So I love Wilmington so much, and it's had a lot of violence. I think it's a tinderbox, so I'm really hoping that this riverfront boardwalk can help to harmonize and help people have those casual conversations towards a better and better Wilmington future.
1: I'm familiar with a couple other towns like that. I'm familiar with Wilmington. Richmond, Shaco Slip is along the river, James River. Baltimore, the Baltimore Harbor Project. Mm-hmm. And they all sort of do the same thing. They give you this feel, they give you a good feeling when you're walking through there. And if that happens in Wilmington and the Riverfront Project does that in Wilmington, wonderful, you know?
4: Yeah, I mean, a girl can hope, you know? I mean, I, I, I realize, but, and, the, you know, interestingly, in, in Baltimore, you know that's a big open space. It it has you know it's a little fancy. And what I love about Wilmington is that it's very fancy. I mean it's very well done, beautifully landscaped, but also just very welcoming and inclusive. It just has a casual invitation, and I think that that helps to harmonize the city with you know all of its parts. And I think that I love the Harbor Project in Baltimore and and it's true I, I hope that it's a harmonizer as well and the richmond thing that's still in progress and i see a lot of the cool stuff they're doing integrating history yep. there as well as the beauty you know the history of the place as well as the as the the parts of you know really celebrating african americans who came from richmond and also noting parts of history that where inequality was just really brutal
1: okay let's let's move to another part of the country now what about moab utah that's that's the place where you got all this god given grandeur right And they're making use of it, right?
4: (laughs) Exactly. And the great thing about Moab is that (laughs) I was told um, by this wonderful guy, Joe, about just these great stories. And one of them, uh, when uranium left town, you know, when the uranium mine closed sort of precipitously, everything just fell off a cliff. And somebody stood up at this meeting where they just said, let's have a meeting and say, what the hell are we going to do now? And this guy stood up and he's like, well, what about tourism? And apparently everybody laughed him <laughs> out of the room. But a group of people was there, you know, a small group of people who just went to a restaurant and said, what are we going to do? Like, okay, what about, what would we do? What would we do if we did that? And they did a lot of clever things and small things. And, um, and then these, these wonderful brothers came along and said, you know, we could just, what if we like really started a... A more Americans or less european thin rail, uh, thin tire bike more a more like fat tire mountain bike thing here on the rim rocks and and really sort of s- s- basically leading to us today which where, where it's it's one of the biggest mountain biking destinations in the world people started to find ways to plug in tourism, Opportunities, and now they are a city of about eight thousand that welcome one point six million people every year. And welcome is a kind of a conditional word, <laughs> but they manage, and and that's where that's where I met Robin, uh, one of the mo- um, mountain bikers, who said, "You have to manage change. You know, you don't you don't push it away. You don't get angry. You don't blame. You manage." And they have had to manage a massive amount of of change through their, their incredible popularity. As you know, you know, their Arches National Park is the symbol of Utah at this point.
1: Yeah. I think it was Moab where you brought up your, I like the way you create these acronyms, the V to R ratio, visitor to resident ratio. Was that, was it in that? that? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
4: They, if you're in a tourist town, we're in a tourist town where I am and I like the tourists. I don't like their cars, but I love them. And they bring a lot of different languages and a lot of, you know, perspectives to our town. So if you have things that are just for the residents, little walks, little waterfalls that nobody knows about, little cafes where, you know, locals can hang out and talk to each other. And you have that ratio where you're not just lying down for the visitors and the key they want to buy. Then you become ambassadors and you say, welcome. We love our town. And this is what we would like you to do, to be a part of this great town that you've come to. We agree. This is totally worth visiting. But, you know, like wear the right shoes when you go up our mountains. How about that?
1: Yeah, that, that's good advice. That's good advice. <laughs> so,
4: so, yeah, we, I, we're we still working on our VR ratio here in town. But, yes, that's that was a good moment when I realized that that can be a real key to uh, managing your the tourist
1: town well, let's come back to the east coast again talk about carborough in north carolina i love north carolina i've got a timeshare down there in kitty hawk and i've been going down there since 81 i love north carolina so what about carborough
4: that's a fantastic town, which I, you know, I kind of just made this central art center a a metaphor and a and a and a catalyst for things that really are going on all around the town. That's where I use that as an example of culture because the art center is a really great place for presenting stuff. So I've performed there. I performed there with John Baez. I've performed there with bands, but they also have a lot of different rooms for. Writing and dancing and all sorts of and drawing and all sorts of um, art making, and I believe you know, and I I know I am biased, but I believe that sort of feeling invited to be part of the creative arts and you know your voice counts as a creative person leads to creative thinking all around and creative creativity is just problem solving, you know, just coming up with solutions like what to do with your leftovers and finding the best parking spot and (laughs) things like that. That's creativity. So Carborough is a very resourceful town with lots of creative solutions to how people can live side by side and a lot of worldly solutions. They have what I call a hometown pride with a worldly welcome. So the trade winds of culture can pass through their town and they welcome them and plug them into how they, you know, create their building codes and pedestrian paths and their festivals and and, and things like that. So that's a great example of how they invite in performers and they are performing, you know, they they are culturally active in, in believing in their own creative voices. And I believe that that is a big secret to why Carborough is, you know, just an amazing, has an amazing feel as soon as you walk in.
1: Yeah, I've got to get. I've got to get there someday soon, uh, which is not too far from the uh, from Knoxville, Tennessee, right?
4: Oh yeah, no, okay. I haven't been to Knoxville for for a bit, but that's that's got a lot of positive proximity. I would say that uh, Knoxville, Chattanooga, a lot of a lot of Tennessee small cities really have it going on.
1: Now let's talk about. Uh, I think this is your neck of the woods, Beacon, and I think Cynthia, you know, probably know pretty much about Beacon too, don't you?
5: you no, know, not quite as much, probably as, as Dar does, You know, as she as she talks about in the book,
4: um, but I'd like to hear what, what she has to say. Absolutely. Um, well, it's great because it is up the street from me. So I, I, you know, people say, what is an indicator of positive proximity? Like, how do we measure it? And I finally now can say how towns, you know, how can it be predictive of something? And I would have predicted the towns with high positive proximity would respond resiliently to the pandemic. And I had my evidence with Beacon, Beacon, uh, you know, where Pete Seeger moved and always had this dream of what Beacon could be. And it never quite was getting there. And um, so the beacon to me is an example, not just of, of what you mentioned last week, which is Dia Beacon, which is a huge um, install art installation museum, very popular, very internationally popular. It's also a, a place that had a lot of different kinds of spaces and places where people could listen to each other, spy on each other, look at big bulletin boards, walk dogs side by side in the dog walk, talk parent to parent at the big huge playing fields that they had and kind of, um, converse themselves into uh, a very conversational person to person success story of, um, a lot of really cool things, you know, like a big dog parade <laughs> and a, a bicycle tree, uh, a, a bicycle holiday tree, and a bicycle menorah, bicycle tire menorah, and a visitor center, and all of those things. So, it's um, there are a lot of different people who kind of found their way with their creative ideas into all of the different kinds of spaces that were available so that they could kind of grow on their own terms and bridge with one another creatively. Um, they they thought in bridges. that's what I how I describe it. And um, so now there's just real resiliency and during the pandemic, you know, there were um, black lives matter marches that ended with, real conversations with law enforcement in the town to come up with real solutions. There were bumped out things on sidewalks for restaurants to expand, which sounds easy, but it's actually, it takes some zoning nimbleness to do that, some agility. <laughs> and there were signs that to the first care, you know, the first line responders and all sorts of things that allowed people to proceed cautiously, but somewhat robustly, because they know each other, they've tried each other, you know, they they have um, worked in a number of different capacities, and everybody knows who to call in order to go forward the most intelligently.
1: Cynthia, you played a role in a town that's uh, mentioned in, in Doris's book, Portland, Maine, the Green Space Project. What was that, and how were you involved in that?
5: Yeah. Um, well, this started uh, a number of years ago. There was a father and a daughter, Bree and David LaCase, who approached me, and they had this problem. The mayor was going to sell Congress Square Park to a local developer because no one was using it. This is oh. a small, yeah, this is a small square in the center of town near the art museum. So they got together. They needed to prove that the space was important, and it was sort of like you know a catch twenty two. So what we work with them to do is just to try some stuff out. They got their friends and family together to activate it over a summer. And they had their friends doing yoga classes for kids. And they brought out a big screen TV and set it up so people could watch the World Cup. You know, they just kept using it as it was, and it was it was a problematic space. It really was designed to be looked at, not really used. So that was very successful. And then the next year, we helped them get a grant to buy new furniture, do more programming, pay artists, um, get volunteers together. They worked with the seniors who lived in the building next door, who were the ambassadors of the space. And the mayor dropped his plans to sell the park. And the city now passed a law that prohibits the sale of any city-owned parkland to private developers, and it's become a really thriving public space. But you know, they didn't stop there, and and that's the thing with this work is that you just keep going with like a snowball, um, you know, that gathers momentum. So what what our friends did, um, they started a nonprofit, and they basically leveraged all of the work that they had done to take it to another to another step further. And in that way, they were able to actually make more permanent changes to the square. And they convinced the city to redesign the intersection that cut off the park from the art museum to make it a bigger public space and safer for pedestrians to get around. So they actually expanded the footprint of the square to create sort of a much larger kind of, of a shared space in the heart you know of their downtown
1: all right so that's one situation where uh your, your two paths have crossed a little bit but there's also another and the connection is in trenton which is where we are right now we're podcasting from trenton which is mentioned in dar's book and i think that the the, um, the catalyst there was a mr johnson is it mr johnson tell Harvey. us what happened why don't both yeah. of you tell us what happened there
4: Uh, Cynthia, how do you know Marty? Um,
5: I know Marty because we worked with Isles. And I think Gary funded this project. I think it was a DOT funded project. We worked with Isles to create what we call a spirit walk. Um, So the goal was to support more walking in Trenton to create safe routes to church to celebrate the 103 houses of worship that are located in Trenton. And to turn each of these churches into a great public space, like like emeralds along, like an emerald necklace mm-hmm. of spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it was working with each of the a number mm-hmm. about a handful of churches and their parishioners to find ways to activate the public spaces around their buildings. Mm-hmm. So one one congregation does a jazz cafe after services. Um, the Shiloh Baptist Church built a kids playground in the vacant lot next door. Um, another church has a weekly farmer's market in their parking lot. A lot of these public spaces, like libraries, and they don't realize that they, they're cramped in their buildings, but they don't realize that they're not taking advantage of the public space, you know, whether it's a parking lot that's really only used you know, on Sundays for a church or a park across the street from a library. And it's really about these institutions turning themselves inside out, becoming welcoming to the community and capitalizing on this sort of unrealized asset they have to build their programs and then to connect themselves to
4: each other and to other destinations um, within the community that's amazing because you know what Marty was pointing out is that there was this excellent intention to help Trenton you know and, and I wrote about this as you know to help Trenton by really beefing up all of this the stuff around the capitol so therefore you know beefing up all of those government buildings that that can exist, to the, I think to the tune of an eighth of the city or something like, and and the problem with government buildings is just that they close at five o'clock at, or whatever you know, and they're kind of um, they're kind of businessy, and so you don't you know people don't think to have. I mean, my joke is that every state capital should have a disco ball on hand because they should throw parties in state capitals. We should really really look at state capitals as as civic gathering spaces and, and transparent places that we literally physically go into so what you're saying about the churches is brilliant because it brings back some more bodies and into different times of the day and different functions and and you know keeps to keeps the streets alive in a way that these municipal buildings, you know, just can't. It's just not the unless these municipal buildings start to reimagine themselves, which it, I don't know if that's part of the conversation as well. But I love this idea of using the existing things, and as you say, turning things inside out, um, so that there's that sense of, of public welcome to all sorts of people in these uh, in these spaces.
1: You know, from listening to all this, it's, it says something to me. It says towns are just like people capitalizing Mm -hmm. on their best assets to prosper, right? People have to do the same thing. If you're a math genius, that's what you do. You don't play baseball, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So with cities and towns, it could be the history. It could be the defining characteristic like a river or like a Moab, the the beautiful grandeur around it, or breathtaking Mm -hmm. setting, right? So Gary and Cynthia, when placemakers approach a project, I'm thinking that you probably can look for your equivalent of Dar's po- positive proximity, do you?
3: Yeah, in a sense we do. If it's already there, the positive proximity, then what you'd look to do is engage the people and build on it. Oftentimes it's not there, right? And Dar had mm-hmm. talked about when the proximity is viewed as contentious or at, at best, um, uncollaborative. So what we try to do is create Many projects, exercises, facilitation, that kind of type of thing to bring people together and and sort of ferment that positive proximity. What do you think, Cynthia?
5: Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly what we we do. And you know people sometimes don't value what they have or they take it for granted. You know they're kind of used to it always being there. They don't really think it's it's really special. And you know we find that main streets, you know are amazing resources that that way. Um, in terms of under, you know, under-realized, you know, value. Because um, they're, they're vital, Main Streets are vital. One of the reasons is for the irreplaceable touch services they offer that you can't order on Amazon, like a hair salon or a pet grooming or a bakery or a place to get your keys duplicated or your shoes repaired, you know. And we, we tell communities that investing in a Main Street creates more lasting value for a town And building a new mall or a big box store, which is going to be obsolete in 10 years, because, you know, main streets last for hundreds of years. You know, with Dara's idea of her essential categories for building and growing positive proximity, and the first is spaces, public spaces, indoor and outdoor. And, you know, Gary and I, in our work, have found that there are four qualities that can make a space a place and a breeding ground, you know, for social interaction. So the first thing is how how comfortable and usable the space is. You know, what amenities are there? Do they meet a wide range of the needs of the people in the space? You know, basically you need shelter, seating, access to food. Wi-Fi is really good. You know, mm-hmm. somewhere to sit and something to look at. Um, mm-hmm. The second thing that makes a place successful are programs and activities, something going on in the space. We find too many public spaces are just designed, and then people, you know, they walk away. There's like nothing to do there, and the activities are so important because they really, they really attract people, and and they can often be managed and produced by folks themselves. Um, the third element of a successful space is how connected they are to other destinations and key places in a town, and absolutely, those non-motorized connections. You know, where public transit are absolutely vital for that. You know, it's the idea that you will even walk a couple of, you'll walk a little bit out of your way to go through a park to see what's in bloom. You know, these spaces are like the defining element of, of cities. Um, and then the last element is basically how they're managed, how they're stewarded and cared for, and how welcoming they are to all members of a community. You know, everyone has the right to the city and mm-hmm. cities need to be more inclusive in these public spaces you know we pay for them with our tax dollars and uh, we should all be able you know to benefit so you know design is a piece of the puzzle you know but the most important element of a successful place is is the experience of it like a great place when you say you're walking along the Wilmington waterfront it feels great but there are quantifiable elements physical elements that contribute to that in internal innate sense of place and it all starts and ends with people. There's another a wonderful book you all should check out. It's written by Susan Silberberg from MIT and it was funded by Southwest Airlines and it's called Places in the Making and in this book that she wrote, she's the director of, of um, the master's program in, in um, design and planning at MIT with her students. The most important thing is the process of bringing people together, To create or build a public space is the most important part. It's more important than the outcome. Oh wow! Yes, it's that process that builds trust, trust and social capital, and that's what makes transformation possible. Whoa! True.
1: Getting back to Dars' book here, I just want to say it has many wonderful stories of transformative things that have happened in cities and towns across America, and if you are concerned about how you can make that happen in your town, here are a couple questions to help any city or town contemplating its future. How do you decide what to do? And let me open that up to uh, uh, Gary and Cynthia and and Dor. How do you decide what to do? Of all the things you could do, how do you decide what to do?
3: Well, the first thing is that if you do placemaking the way we do it, the way it should be done, I think, is that we don't decide what to do. We don't too often modern planning of cities and places is done by experts trained at schools who haven't visited a town, and they come in and they apply their principles to it. So the first thing that should be done in placemaking is to engage the community, facilitate a discussion, and have them tell us what they want to do. And that's different than telling us the actual project, right? So they they shouldn't tell us that they want a five-foot-wide bike lane and a three-foot- buffer, or they want a traffic signal somewhere, or they want, right, what they should tell us is they want to be able to cross the street better. They want better connectivity between the places which Cynthia just talked about, Mm -hmm. right? And then we bring our expertise in at that point, planning, landscape architecture, urban design, street design, and we bring our expertise in to give some life to it. And oftentimes you give them several looks at it, like, well, here's five different ways, like we did this in Haley, Idaho. Right. Here's five different ways you can tame your five lane Main Street. What do you like?
2: Mm. Mm. Wow.
0: Yeah. So from my own understanding, I'm trying to absorb all this information. And it really seems like it's basic way what people can think is just you have the people themselves. That's number one. Everybody thinks it's down, comes down to the people. And then, Gary, as you said, you're and everybody's really building a community that would want to draw the people to that. And that's going to be the both process. If you have both people and that place together, that's where that success is going to come for that town to be thriving and and successful throughout the years to come, correct?
3: Well, yeah, Kevin. And to put it in the terms that, you know, like in your business, right? If you're going to start building a house from scratch, right, it's always useful for the plumber and the electrician and everybody else to know what the what the overall plan is, what the overall vision for it is. Right, and work know, together on that. Right, you know, the, the wiring may conflict with the plumbing or the plumbing may be in the wrong place, the gas lines may be in the wrong place. And so with town planning, we call this creating the place recipe. Before you make any changes, like for instance, I'm a transportation person. So when I went to Haley, Idaho, I said to them, we're not gonna offer you any alternatives until you decide what you want your town to be. And then once you decide what your town to be, we can decide what kind of kitchen cabinets you put in, what kind of countertop do you want, et cetera.
1: That's kind of the way you approach it. Yeah, pretty much. Right?
0: You know, I got to say, Gary, for the first time, we've been doing the show with him a couple of times over the years. This is the first time you have not talked about food or put an analogy in about food for the first time. Darhee <laughs> always talks about food, and it just makes me hungry at this point. So I'm, I'm glad you didn't talk about well, it. Well, yet.
3: I did use the term recipe.
0: Yeah, well, I knew. I, thought, I figured you were getting to that when you started talking about that. But.
3: You usually talk about pizza.
0: Yeah, he usually does.
3: Yeah, pizza, right? You know, like you don't really, for dinner, want to eat a pile of cheese, even if it's the best cheese around, Uh, water, flour. You want variety. Right. Well, you also want some way to mix them all together. So they...
1: look good and taste good
0: right mm-hmm. well, that's what this is all about pretty much uh, you know the people in the communities you want to get everybody together and that's how you got to do it but you still need that draw to bring the people in
1: yep
3: and cynthia can talk about that as could Dara, i'm sure
1: i'm interested too in dar you you talk a lot about this in your book how does the money materialize
4: first off if i were going to do this all over again i would have some kind of chapter or even a separate book about you know, some people starting at such a disadvantage that I wouldn't want them to think that I'm saying to everybody, wow, you can always find two sticks to rub together to turn into that campfire and get things going. You can always find those twigs and the kindling and then the logs, you know, because if you've been, you know, low-income people in general, it's it, it's not just, I have a lot of voluntarily low-income, you know, hippie friends, and they're great at rubbing two sticks. They're very resourceful. But, you know, if, if you've really been, you know, sort of shut out in pockets by systemically, institutionally, um, it's going to be harder and sometimes more humiliating and, and, you know, if you've been demoralized, felt demoralized by participation before, it's just going to be harder to get that original energy together. But really, a lot of this stuff is free. You know, it's it's looking at what you have and actually figuring out a way to save money. So, so there's some mechanisms that one person can tap into. One, somebody pointed out to me in Middletown, Connecticut, always organizing in your own self-interest. She said that you'd have to be a black belt to start organizing town positive proximity in somebody else's interest. So start with where you are. And, you know, for instance, when you talk about, you know, where the money comes from, you might be a parent who is really sick. You have three kids. You're really sick of buying Halloween costumes. So it takes a little bit of bravery, but you can approach somebody at a local, at the library or the the town hall, or the farmer's market, if you have one, the school, and you can talk to a friend who has a rack, a clothing rack, and get together, and you can start a Halloween costume swap. And then you meet some other people who are like, you know, I'm also sick of the fact that, you know, we do this at these holidays. And it's so annoying to me. And and then they get, so a lot of times you just start by organizing your own self-interest and you start to meet people with certain like-minded things going on. And, and the second thing I recommend is for people to think in bridges if they can to find that conscious bridger inside So if let's say somebody's cordoned off a piece of the river for swimming and you say, oh, I was a lifeguard. I'd like to teach swimming to people because it's a really important thing. And so many people get cut off by just not knowing how to swim. And so think in bridges. Go to the retirement community. And I think Cynthia and Gary will agree that that's where the gold of a community is, whether a person's retired at 30 or 90. These are the people with a lot of expertise and patience and time to add. So go to the retired people, go to the YMCA. If you have one, go to the library, go to the school, go to the businesses to see if they'll, you know, support it and endorse something. And so second thing is thinking bridges again, that's free. And third is to know your no. <laughs> so when people say no at first, that's what people reflexively often do, especially in a town that's first getting its that energy together. And sometimes no is something on the way to yes. And sometimes it's like, we're just not ready for your idea. And the fourth is to, if you feel like there's some kindred spirit energy to create a downtown, Oh, I will say I have seen better outcomes from people with what they call downtown organizations that call themselves downtown organizations, than places that have traditional chambers of commerce, even though I've seen very resilient and interesting chambers of commerce. But a downtown association automatically creates a sense of the collective terrain all around the bricks and mortar and the individual profits. And as somebody in Boise said, you know, if I want to build my business, I have to build Boise. So the Downtown Association is just putting that shingle out, I think it's a helpful catalyst. And also just something for people to keep in the back of their minds you guys know about curb value of houses and how great that is for your real estate. If your town has curb value, people are going to want to move to your town. Even if everything's in disarray, but they feel like, wow, this is a town that closes down its main street you know, for three days every January, creates a great toboggan course. They're just going to want to be a part of that thing. So building positive proximity and finding the groovy garlic festival and the library programs and and the things that are mostly free will really help build a tangible wealth, I would say. There's a thing I call Byron Towns, which is the buy your real estate now town, so (laughs) B-Y-R-E-N. And if I were to, uh, this is not what I'm really interested in doing, but I could probably be a good Byron Town predictor. I know based on garlic festivals and certain public programming, where people can buy their
1: real estate and watch it grow uh, in the future we got yeah. <laughs>
4: to talk again yeah we to talk again
0: well that's huh? something I what i talked about when i bought my one of my rental properties people are like well it's, it's a money thing i'm like not really i said i'm up in Doylestown. i have a property but that's going to be my future home because i love the town it's everything you talked about in your book this Doylestown has it's it's a great yep. place it's a lot of great people I, I just love going there and that's one thing i was looking for when i retire is just to head up there
1: bucks county in, in total yeah. Doylestown, Newtown. Yeah, yeah there's, absolutely. There's a lot of Washington great places course. around here. Well, listen, we got to wrap this, but I just want to say one thing. If there's anybody out there listening right now, and you're thinking about, you know, sitting, scratching your head, what can we do to revitalize our town? I would, I would listen to this twice. This has been like an encyclopedia of how to do it right. So, Dar Williams, thank you a million times for doing this. Gary Toth. Thank you. Cynthia Nikitin, and... My partner and buddy here, Kevin Kennedy, we thank everybody for doing this. Dar, we'd like to maybe probably have you back on and talk more about this at some future date if you're up for it.
2: I would love it.
1: Okay, terrific.
0: Dar, I also give you a suggestion. If you want any somebody else to sing with you on stage, I'm going to put Ron's <laughs> services out for no, you. I, if you ever yeah, wanted to do that.
1: You know what? If, if, if you heard me sing, the whole hall would empty immediately. I try to sing in church no, the uh, of what they're talking here. Everybody he would definitely empty it out. But Dar, thank you very much for coming on your Valuable Home podcast. We thank appreciate you. appreciate it. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories.
0: If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price.